There it is. Okay. We're going to go ahead and read Psalm 119, verse 137. Which is Sadi? Sadi, yes. Sadi. Uh, which means trail, <coughs> righteous, journey, chase, hunt. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out. For my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Mm. All right. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so very much for all the wonderful blessings that you've just lavished upon us. And uh, we had some great rain this morning, which was very much needed here in Sarasota. And it was... Uh, felt good on the back and it sure uh, feels really nice out there right now with the breeze and the sunshine and uh, the cooler weather we thank you for that and uh, lord we uh, certainly petition you for the people that are suffering that belong to this church uh, we haven't gotten an update on uh, our brother graham in scotland but we do pray that he will continue to heal and get better and uh, lord you know each and every person that is having some type of problem or trial or affliction and we would pray that you would be with them and help them through it and we thank you for those that are restored back to health in the past few days or even the past week and uh, lord we just uh, ask that you would be with us tonight as we study your word and help us to handle it properly and to uh, just cherish it always to read it to apply it to our lives and to uh, want to tell others about it and the wonderful uh, story of jesus our lord we thank you for the opportunity once again to come here and to meet, and we commit this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how far back do you want me to start? We are on uh, three, three, one. so we need to go back to, ooh, I'm in Jonah. That's the wrong book. <laughs> Romans 3, verse uh, 31. Just go back to uh, 27, which yep. is the beginning of a paragraph. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. What principle? On that of observing the law? No. But on that of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith? Amen. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. All right. Do we then uh, make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Kind of the same. Mm -hmm. Different translation, but basically the same. Um, it almost killed me to leave here last week without finishing chapter three, no. but <laughs> yeah, we, we just couldn't do it. You know, we just couldn't rush through it. So, uh, Let's see here. What do we have to say about verse 331? Is there something that I want to uh, tell you first? I know there's something that is just nagging me that Burke and I get in these conversations and I forget the things that I uh, I, I, I have on my mind. So let's see. Burke's uh, No, it's just, he always has something exciting to say and we get off on tangents. And anyway, um, 
Let's see here. Verse 331. Read that one more time. Do we then make void the law through faith? Is the law made void through faith? No. Is basically certainly not. He says, on the contrary, we establish the law. What does that mean? Based on his argument that it is faith, apart from deeds of the law, by which we are justified, Paul now asks, do we then make void the law through faith? The question is obvious, and the answer, unfortunately, will be misunderstood unless looked at through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Hey, Rick, how we doing? Hey, how we doing there? We got a... Uh, who you who you got there? I think I've met you before. Yeah, um, Doctor Block, lots of parents. That's right. Okay, thank you. Oh, good to have you here. I knew that I knew you. Um, so uh, the question is obvious, and the answer, unfortunately, will be misunderstood unless looked at through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Okay, first thing we need to do is consider Jesus' words of Matthew five seventeen. Okay, uh, unfortunately, people. I can't tell you how often it happens that people want to mix in the law and uh, not understanding proper New Testament theology, and then they end up right back what he warns against, especially in the book of Galatians. But Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but fulfill. How many times have you had that quoted to you, implying that you need to observe the law? Anybody ever had that? Why aren't you observing this or that of the law? Well, what, is, what did he say? Read it again. Um, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. Right? I have not come to destroy. And they stop right there. That's where their theology ends. They don't finish with the last two words where he says, but, but fulfill. That's right. He came to fulfill. And fulfill it he did. If you don't understand that precept, it's like when uh, uh, people quote the story of... Uh, uh, the what is it? The adulterous woman in uh, John, and they say, um, uh, "Did any of these people condemn you?" And what did they say? No, nobody condemned me, sir. And he says, "Neither do I con condemn you." And they stop right there. Yeah, right. And what what is the next thing you hear? Go sin no sin. more. Go sin no more. Right. <laughs> it, it, you have to finish the thought, and you have to also take the surrounding context. If you don't do that, then you've got a, a severe problem. He did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill. So what does that mean? Let's go on. How are we doing tonight? Don't you hate this weather? Cool and breezy and the humidity is gone. Oh, gee, it's just terrible. Um, okay. Um, using Paul's response and or the first half of Matthew 5, verse 17, some teach that we are bound by the precepts of the law. That's what I told you. I have this, people quote this to me all the time. I had somebody do it a, a couple days ago on Facebook. They quoted something about the law and, you know, how... They were taking Matthew and inserting it in the New Testament theology. Okay, um, they uh, Paul's response. They teach that you're bounded precepts of the law. This is taken to uh, varying degrees by different sects and denominations. Almost nobody is free of this, though. Almost no denomination that I have ever been in or any church that I've been in is free of this completely. They right. insert something from the law. The biggest one that I always bring up, the one that irks me the most, right. is tithing. Thank you. Yeah. Tithing is an Old Testament principle. It is not a New Testament principle. It is done. It is over. We do not preach tithing. If you want to preach tithing, go find a church where they preach it, and you can go listen to that every single week for the rest of your life. We do not preach that, okay? That is an Old Testament principle, as is everything else in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in Christ, okay? But as I said, you'll have some churches that, believe it or not, mandate the feasts of the Lord. 
but they don't mandate other things. So you get churches that mandate no eating pork. They, uh, one thing or another becomes somebody's pet peeve, and they say, we can't do this, and it's in the law. Law is fulfilled in its entirety, 100%. It is nailed to the cross. cross. Thank you. Okay, we have to understand that. There are very, very, very few churches that I've ever listened to online or that I've read a commentary from or that I've been at. I don't think I've ever been in a church that does not adhere to the, the precepts of by grace through faith entirely. They don't go to New Testament theology. They always fall back on one precept or another, and usually it's tithing mixed in with at least one other. But um, uh, it, uh, this is taken to varying degrees, but in the end, it is entirely entirely contrary to the tenor of the New Testament. Time and time again, we are instructed by Paul and others in the New Testament that the law is over and it is done in Christ Jesus, okay? Anybody that cites this to you, make sure that you, when they cite that to you, they'll take the verse and they'll paste it in, say, see, you're obligated to the law. Circle, take a picture or a snapshot of that post on Facebook if you know how to do a screenshot. Save it to your photos. Go to your Photoshop editor, circle the words, um, but fulfill, and then repost it back to them, okay? That is what I would recommend, so that they understand that they are not to, uh, you know, disregard the point that Jesus is making, all right? Um, a few examples of the many examples of being instructed in this. I'm going to give you a couple. Romans 5.20, Jim, we'll get that. Romans 6.14, Linda, get that. Galatians 2.21, Cindy, will you get that? Galatians 5, verse 3, Pat, and then uh, uh, um, uh, Burke, go to Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. That way, we'll just start there, and that okay. way, okay, Romans 5, verse 20. Okay. And if you want to read a surrounding verse, if it, it keeps it in context, go ahead. 5.20 is, okay, what's the beginning of a paragraph? The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but... Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where so, sin increased, I, I'm just going to stop you and I'll let you finish again. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Okay, where did sin come from? From the uh, law. From the law. Without law, there is no sin, right? Mm -hmm. If there's no law saying you have to drive 50 miles an hour, you can drive whatever <clears throat> speed you want, right? Without law, there cannot be sin imputed. Hello, ladies. How are you? you Aren't you hating this, uh, this terrible weather out there? <laughs> I can keep saying this because there's people that are watching online that are probably sitting in like Ireland freezing or something. But anyway, you don't follow that law at all. No, absolutely. Yeah, that 50 mile an hour law. I don't know that one. But anyway, go ahead and finish that first. Read it again, the whole thing. Okay, but the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that as the sin reigned in death, so all grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Through Lord. Jesus Christ. Okay, so sin reigned in death because of the law. Christ has freed us from the death, and therefore we, uh, it, righteousness, however they term that again, um, through righteousness, yeah. reign through righteousness because of the fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. Go ahead, next one, 614. 614, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You are not, what? Under law, You're not under law, but, but under, under grace. grace. Okay, how many people skip that? They literally skip that. Oh, we got a tithe now. Pass around the plate, right? You are not under law. You are under grace. If you want to give, give. If you don't want to give, don't give. That is up to you and God. 
All right, that is how it goes. There are a couple stipulations in the New Testament. One does say, give as you have been prospered prospered or blessed, yes. And then uh, the second one is to not forget uh, those who teach you. I think it's 6.6, Galatians 6.6. Anyway, those are the only two times in the New Testament he even touches on that. And Paul says, I work with my own hands. I'm not taking anything from you and uh, right. to set an example and blah, 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 blah. Okay. I don't understand the, so stuck I, I don't understand Is it. because it's the only way the church... They think, they think the church that if survive? people... They think that they will not survive if they beat that if they don't beat it over people's heads. And I, I think that I said that this in this class. I may not have. Is that there was a guy... Um, somebody told me this, and I'm trying to remember who. Somebody emailed me. He's in a church, and it was... Um, South of here, I'm going to I'm going to blow this a little bit, and I'm sorry. And if he's watching, he can remind me. But um, he uh, uh, Les Feldick came to their church, and he told him tithing is over, it's done, and the uh, the pastor would not give it up. He wouldn't give it up. And finally, after two years of it eating away at him, realizing that Les is right, that the law is fulfilled and it is done, and we don't mandate. He gave up tithing completely. He never mentioned it again. Wow. And guess what happened? They, got more they, more money. Money. they made more money. Yeah. That's right. Because people are not being pressured. They're giving as they're prospering. Okay. Whatever. And if not, maybe it's time to find a new job. I mean, I don't know. I just, I'm not trying to accuse people that I had one guy tell me, um, uh, I, I had, that was one of the very first things I ever typed on my old website years and years ago, long before I was, you know, I was still working in wastewater and, uh, he was so angry at me. And he says, why would you put that there? Why would you say that? And I said, well, that's because what the Bible says. And he says, but what about a little church with a pastor that only has a few people in it? I said, he can get a part-time job. If he only has a few people, what's he doing the rest of the week? Right? So, I, I mean, that's you have to think these things through. Is that the Lord gave us this word for a reason. Not to give exceptions, but to stand fast on it. Cindy, you got the next one? Galatians 2.21. Well, I'm going to back up half of okay. this. Okay, yeah, that's fine. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for nothing. Mm-hmm. If righteousness can come through the law, I say this week after week, you point at the cross and you say, what can I add to this? Is there anything I can do to become righteous apart from this? And if so... His, his death meant absolutely nothing. If I can go around the cross to get back to my heavenly father, then what he did means nothing. Perfect example, my brother was driving one time and he, he went by a billboard and had a picture of Christ on the cross bleeding and just bruised and you know blood streaming off of his head. And it says, if I'm okay and you're okay, what am I doing up here? Think it through, right? If everything is okay and I can find my way back to God on my own, what am I doing up here? Kind of brings it home, doesn't it? Got my hair standing up all over me. Every time I think of that, it reminds me that righteousness cannot come any other way except through the shed blood of Christ. And that happened on a cross. And so that's why Paul says, I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross. God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't want to misquote it, but it's Galatians 6.16. So there you go. And then we have Galatians 5, verse 3 for Pat. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor Okay, if anybody allows himself to be circumcised, that does not mean that if I have a child and it's in Sarasota Memorial Hospital and he's circumcised, that uh, that kid is a debtor to the law for the rest of their life. Circumcision is something that is 
deemed healthy. It's, it takes care of uh, other problems. It is recommended. That's not what that's talking about. If a person is uncircumcised, suppose, and we'll, we'll just call him Mark, is standing here, and Mark says, I've never been circumcised. And the Bible's speaking about circumcision all the way through it. And he says, I need to be circumcised in order to be right with God, because there are places out there that teach this. They teach this in churches. that You're not circumcised? Well, you need to do that. And what does Paul say in Galatians? He says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, the point is in order to please God through a deed of the law. That's, that's what he's talking about. Christ means nothing to you. And you are a debtor to the entire law. Now, he uses circumcision as the benchmark for what he's talking about. That's because it's such a big thing. It's such Jews. a big thing. It is the thing. It is the main thing of being a Jew. Okay? But the precept stands for any part of the law. That's just the benchmark. It is an example of the law. But if you say, I need to observe the Passover in order to be saved, then you are a debtor to the whole law. If you say, I need to observe a Sabbath, which is a Saturday, not a Sunday, Sundays are not Sabbath days, ever. It is a Saturday which was given to the people of Israel as a sign to the people, people of Israel, and then it was later uh, mm -hmm. written into the law itself. But if you say, I must observe a Sabbath in order to be saved, as the Seventh-day Adventists do, they're heretics. They are heretics, and they are debtors to the entire law. And guess what? They cannot meet the entire law. It is impossible. That's proven all the way through the New Testament. If they think they can, why aren't they sacrificing lambs? You know, every morning and every evening, new moon celebrations go through every single precept of the entire law. And if they miss one, if they miss one out of those 613 precepts, they are lost. Okay, they are debtors to the entire law. The the prince. Now, this doesn't mean that if you are saved and you later go out and say, "Well, I need to do this and that," and you get into some church. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but you will lose your joy and your rewards. That's right, your joy in this life because you're going to be miserable, wondering what do I need to do next, and you're also going to lose your rewards be because clear, you didn't trust in Christ. Everything you've said is that I must do this in order to be saved. That's right. If you were to, you know, like some friend said, hey, we're having a Seder dinner, come over. That's right. And you're going, sure, I will do that, but I know I'm saved already. I'm saved so already. That's right. This. I'm going to Seder dinner. As a matter of fact, you guys had one just recently. That's right. There was a man that came and explained it to him, and they broke the bread, and they said, this is what this is for, and this is what this is for. And we've had churches do it a lot. You get somebody that's a specialist on the Passover Seder, and they have it. That is not what that's talking about. No, that's an instructional thing. He's a messianic. Well, he's a messianic Jew. As long as he does not tell you, a lot of messianic churches are just like Seventh Day Adventists. You need to do this. You need to do no, that. You need to. You can't eat pork. Once the, I know he didn't. I'm yeah. just saying that if yeah. they do that, out the door, heretic Herman. So, we don't want you here. If they're messianic and they believe in Jesus Christ, why don't they get that? They are. They do believe in Jesus Christ. I understand that, but why do they still feel they mm -hmm. have to? Because it, some people, it, they're no different than Seventh Day Adventists. Just because they're Jewish doesn't mean that they're any different. Some people, and I'm not talking about all Messianic Jews. There are good Messianic congregations that are bad. There are good churches and they're bad. There are some people that just can't give up deeds of okay. the law. They they think that they need to do it. They or a second one is that they know that it's not required, but their not heart is not geared towards Jesus. But they know that by telling people these things, they can keep them in oh, in right. bondage. And, and right? It's probably one other one too. Right. The other reason might be that okay, you know what? I've got this fellow who's Jewish. Right. Like I was and am really, but uh, and and he's um, 
you know, waffling. He doesn't right. know what we're doing here. So, like, you know, come on here. You're going to see all the comforts of home. We do all the... That is true. Where <laughs> would you place that in the New Testament? Can you find an example of that? Because I can think oh, of one uh, Paul, when he says, uh, I, I'm any, everything to anybody. that like, And then he went and did something to another person, mm -hmm. right. Timothy. He yeah. had him circumcised in order to ensure that people were not offended away until they understood Christ. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in order for Timothy to be saved. He was saved. He circumcised him so that he would not be an affront to other people in the process of bringing them to Christ. If they say you're a Jew and you're not circumcised, they're not even going to talk to him. They're not even going to talk to him, and you've cut that bridge completely. So he circumcised him, not in order to say you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, but in order to allow a foot in a door that you can later explain. This door's already been opened, right? But uh, that so there are different examples. There are, but the, the intent is that if you tell somebody or you believe that you need to do one of these precepts in order to be saved or to keep being saved then you're a debtor to the whole law. That is that is what that verse is saying right there. You are a debtor to the law, and that means that you are a debtor to every precept within the law. And when that happens, it is a self-condemning act. And, and to a point, which is where people who do believe exactly what he's saying here, where they tend to, uh, for lack of a better word, pervert that, is to say, well, I'm saved, so I don't have to worry about the law. I can, I can, oh, that's license. I, that's I the can, exact opposite. Like, you know, I can do this and I can do that. But <clears throat> New Testament tells us not to do these things, to act in a holy manner. Right. And so that's that's the opposite of law is license. And so we want to stay away from that as well. That's called... Um, um, I, cloak okay. of righteousness. What's that? No, no, I'm thinking of the term, and I'll get it in a second. You had a question back there, didn't you? Yeah, I apologize because I'm no, no, no. here on a regular basis. That's all right. I'm, I'm one of those you're kind of talking about. Oh, so the uh, <laughs> just cool. No, that the um, um, I think your question that Paul would be to discuss now is in Acts 15, right. very well described because there were a group of those who came and said, unless they're circumcised, they can't be saved. That's right. But what they what they meant was that's the sign of circumcision becoming fully Jewish, and so in other words, unless they're circumcised and they keep all of the things right can't be saved and the end of that chapter says no that has nothing to do with it they have believed like we believe. and they are saved because of belief, belief exactly. that's exactly right and then they gave them three admonitions to not follow through if you do these things you do well they're not actually commands they're just and plus they're later actually uh, Acts is a book which is 99.999% descriptive. descriptive. It describes what happened. It doesn't prescribe anything. The letter in Acts 15 prescribes for a certain amount of time until something else came along, which was Paul's letters. <coughs> so we have to be very careful with the book of Acts. What he said is correct. They were, they, they, it has New Testament theology in it, but it is not directive theology. It is simply descript describing what happened at a point in time in order for people to transition from the Jewish mentality from uh, Peter. Cha uh, yeah, Peter chapters 1 through 12, Paul chapter 13 through 28. And we went through that. It took us three years to get through that. But when you understand that Acts is not prescriptive. And I had somebody email me about that a while ago, and he says, well, I, I, he wasn't challenging me. He says, I, I think I disagree with that, and can you tell me why? And I went back to him, and I gave him one example out of hundreds that I could have given him, but it was a baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I quoted them. I said, I want you to read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10, and you tell me which one applies, because they all give a 
uh, the uh, requirement of baptism, and they also give uh, the coming down of the Holy Spirit or the reception of the Holy Spirit in all three. And they all three occur differently. Remember that? We'll go through that in the book of Romans. I'm not going to do it today because it's not the right time, but we will go through that again in the book of Romans. Is that all three are completely different. And you say, why is it that way? And secondly, which one do I use? Or do I not use any of them? Because people will take Acts, especially chapter 238, as uh, Church of Christ, they'll say, well, we'll kill those Baptists with uh, in Acts in 238. <laughs> it's a, a joke they make. Acts, the book of Acts, and then 38 is a gun, so 238. So they'll shoot you and they'll cut you up. And they are the ones that have misunderstood that the book of Acts 1 is descriptive, and 2, chapter 2 isn't even speaking to the Gentile church. It's Peter speaking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. The church it was starting at that point, but there were no Gentiles. There, there's no theology to be derived in ap applying it to your life in the book of chapter 2. None. It is all describing what occurred on that day, and that is it. So we'll go on from there. And um, Jews and half-Jews and Gentiles. That's right. You've got the Jews, and then chapter 8 is the Samaritans, and then you've got the Gentiles in chapter 10. And which one do you use for New Testament theology of receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized? Which one? None. None. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> Why? Because Paul defines what we need to do in his letters. His letters are begins with a P. What? Prescriptive. That's right. They are prescriptive. And some, some of Paul's letters are descriptive. You know, I would sank in a, I, I was in the sea for a whatever, and I've been in shipwrecks, and uh, I was attacked by wild beasts in this place. Well, obviously, that's not prescribing anything. It doesn't say for everybody to go to that place and be attacked by wild beasts. It's describing what happened. But his letters are mostly prescriptive, but he has some descriptive comments. Acts is 99.9% descriptive with a couple of prescriptive comments which are later refined by Paul's letters for the Gentile church age okay so we have Hebrews chapter and these are just five examples of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that we could have picked out I just picked out five before you go on Carol Charlie you had said this so beautifully before I'm quoting Charlie Garrett okay I think okay so see if I got it right that when we believe, you know, we're born again, right. we are baptized of the Holy Spirit. That's right. And we are circumcised. In our heart. In our heart. That's correct. To Christians, Jews, whoever. That's, it doesn't matter who you are. You can, be a, you can be a Gentile or a Jew. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you are, that is your baptism of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. From that moment, you will never get more of the Holy Spirit ever. In all of your life, you will never get more of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can get more of you. That's right. Go ahead. Oh, okay. And you were absolutely, absolutely right about it. You were circumcised in the heart, and you are now pleasing to God, not because of your own deeds, but because of the deeds of Christ. Very good. What's that? That you believe. That you believe. That's right. Brett, go ahead. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness. Unprofitableness, usefulness, that's right, uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of... Read those words again. The law made... Nothing, nothing perfect. What about Jesus? He fulfilled the law. But he was already perfect. That's the answer I was looking for. It made nothing perfect. He was already perfect. He didn't need to be perfected by the law he fulfilled the law because he was without sin and he lived without sin. Therefore, it didn't perfect even him. Okay, go ahead. It made nothing. The law made 
nothing, nothing perfect. perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Near to God, and that is Jesus Christ. We are perfected. We could say we are perfected through the law, but not of our own selves. We are perfected through the fulfillment of the law by Christ. And that's as close as you could get to anything coming out of perfection from the law. But it wasn't because the law could make us perfect. It was only because Christ could make us perfect. He fulfilled it on our behalf, and his blood is what allows us to be perfected under the law in him. Okay? But, you know, I like uh, Colossians, or, uh, 1 Corinthians one thirty. He has made unto us wisdom, righteousness. Righteousness. That's what we're talking about. That's right. We are the righteousness of God in Christ because of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. We could go on and on with those verses, and we could also go on and on with verses, which I already did one or two weeks ago, about the law being done. Right? The law is finished. So uh, uh, that that is one of them right there, Hebrews 7. We've got another one in Hebrews 8. We've got another one in Hebrews 10. But we have implicitly in Hebrews at least 15 more, at least 15, which if you simply read it, it shows you that the law is done. Okay. Uh, so we don't need to go any further with that. That's five examples of many. All you need is one that is rightly um, uh, understood, and it's enough. But having five just supports it. Okay. That the law is obsolete and set aside in Christ is explicitly stated, especially in the one that he just read. This means, the, but also the one that uh, you read, which said we are not under the law, but uh, under grace. Um, it is, uh, this means the entire body of the law, the entire body. It is either done or it is not done. If it is not done, then the book of Hebrews, you might as well just rip it out and throw it away because it says it's done how many times? Also Colossians 2.14, it is nailed to the cross. It is done. Okay, um, the entire body of the law, no distinction, and this is one that people have real trouble with, okay? I was uh, at the beach preaching one day, and Sergio was there on the camera, and there was a couple that walked up and was listening, and if I listened to somebody saying what, he, what I said, I would have walked away too. <laughs> I, I would have. What, it, it, but if I had stayed another 30 seconds, I would have gotten the answer, and this guy and his wife left, and then... 15 seconds later, Sergio said if he had stayed 15 more seconds, he would have understood what you were saying. But I want you to understand that what I'm going to tell you upsets a lot of people until you have thought it through, okay? There is no distinction. Anywhere in the Bible, never mentions a distinction between what people try to say, the moral law and the civil law, okay? The law is the law. There's no such thing as this is a moral precept under the law, and we're still bound to it, and this is a civil law, such as not eating pork, and we are not bound to it. In other words, the moral law is fulfilled in Christ. Now, if somebody turns off right now without listening to what I'm telling you, then they are going to be like that guy on the beach. He walked away, and he thought, this guy's a heretic. He's saying that I, I don't have to do anything. I can kill people and whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But the law itself, all Ten Commandments— and every single thing under the law, pork and uh, you know, wearing clothes with two materials and all of the billions of things that are under the law are fulfilled in Christ. Either that is true or the law is not fulfilled in its entirety in Christ and we might as well go back under the law, okay? Everything, there's never a distinction in the New Testament between the moral law and the civil law. So why is it not right to murder a person today? Well, what I have learned is that everything except for the Sabbath was reiterated by God. Everything in the New Testament, with the exception of the Sabbath, is repeated in the New Testament. 
Paul says, uh, you shall not kill, you should not, you know, and he writes these things murder. down. And he says, murder. yeah, murder, thank you, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You've got all of these things. They are repeated in some way within the New Testament. Don't covet, it's there, okay? We're not to lie. Except one, and that is the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. It is never repeated again in the New Testament as being mandatory. In Hebrews 4, 3, it says, now we who believe do enter that rest. We are in Christ's rest. And Paul then explains what that means in the book of Romans. Even though it's before Hebrews, he explains it in Romans. If you want to observe one day set apart, go ahead. If you want to observe all days the same, go ahead. It makes no difference. In the New Testament, there is no requirement for a Sabbath or a Sunday or a Tuesday night. I I got so mad at Jack Van Impey one day. He's always quoting the Bible and he does a great job of it. He's got a fun show, you know, uh, you get to watch Rex Ella 15 times during the show. They pan out to her, and she's smiling at him. And anyway, um, so if you watch Jack Van Impe, that's great. But I got so mad at him one day because he says, I don't understand why Christians don't go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and they should be there on Wednesday evening as well. And I thought, you quote the Bible better than any person I've ever met in my life, and you're telling somebody that when Paul says, some people esteem one day above another, uh, uh, some esteem all the days the same. And it never says once in this book, go to church on Sunday morning, go to church on Sunday night, and be sure to be at church on Wednesday night. That is his pet peeve. Some people want to show up on Monday, and that becomes their day. I know churches have services on Monday. It doesn't matter when you go. But if you make that your standard for other people, you have departed from the Word of God. You can make it your standard for yourself because that's what Paul says to do. But if I say to you, Linda, why weren't you in church on Thursday night? You're supposed to be here. I've departed from the word of God. Okay, do you understand the difference? Mm -hmm. Come to church every Thursday for the rest of your life if you want, or the rest of my life if I kick off first. And um, <laughs> one of us has got to go, or we'll go up together. But um, you see what I'm saying? If I say that to you, that that is mandatory, Darla, why weren't you in church on Sunday morning? Right? Then I have departed from what the word says. We should fellowship together, but it doesn't give any any mandatory distinctions, okay, or or uh, whatever. So uh, just so you understand, there is a difference between personal, uh, you know, committing yourself to something and then committing other people to it. If I want to be circumcised for the sake of health, that is my business. If I want to be circumcised or tell you to be circumcised in order to meet the precepts of the law, you have departed from New Testament theology. You have departed from what the word would expect of you. That's the important difference, okay? You want to take your pet peeve and apply it to yourself, go ahead. When you start telling other people to do it, that is inappropriate. And I bet you Les Feldick would agree with that 99.9,000% plus yes. one. Um, right. Yeah, he, he's. Uh, if there's one person that you want to listen to that understands New Testament theology as well as anybody, and he's not trained in any, sem he, he simply picked up the book and he reads it and he teaches is Les Feldick. You can watch him online through the Bible with Les Feldick. <coughs> he's ancient now. He's like 92, 93 something. He's still out there teaching. Great, great. Watch him every day. Every day. Good for you. He is, he is outstanding. Um, uh, let's see here. So we uh, talked about that. Okay, so um, there's no distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law in the uh, in the, the Bible. It doesn't make that distinction. However, many attempt to find this distinction, and this goes especially back to the great commentators of you know Albert Barnes, Adam Clark um, in the 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 1800s, the 1700s. These are great writers, but they are always writing about the moral law. Of course, that's not set aside in Christ. It doesn't say that. 
it never, it says the law. And guess what? The law was given at Mount Sinai in chapter 20 and everything else follows from that. It is a part of the law and it is the basis of the law. Okay. There's no distinction. So remember that. Um, however, many try to find that distinction. The moral law would include the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law. I said this would include things like pork, sacrificing at the altar in Jerusalem, etc., etc., etc. By looking for such a distinction, the body of law found in the Old Testament becomes what? What term would you use if you say, well, that's moral, because it's not just the Ten Commandments. They'll say this is moral also and this is moral, but that's ceremonial. It becomes pick and choose, Okay. When you do that, when you start picking and choosing which part of the law you will mandate for people to do and which part of the law you won't, you have become the arbiter of God's law. And that is right there. It is all the Old Testament theology. If you pick one and say that's still mandatory today, like tithing, then you are the arbiter of what is and is not moral and what is and is not ceremonial. And the Bible doesn't make that distinction. So be careful with that, okay? Um uh, it's a pick and choose code for Christians. Some denominations still teach, and here it is, tithing, or they may pick no pork, for example. I've been my neighbors. My neighbors are great people. I won't tell you their names, but they were great people, but they would not eat pork. And they said, go to Book of Acts. It's clearly speaking about pork. When he was talking about which which one, what, oh, um, the sheep coming down with all the unclean oh, uh, things. Nothing to do with that. That had nothing to do with what it was talking about. But that's what their pastor told them. They never got to the, uh, you know, putting the whole thing together. And so they wouldn't eat pork. That was their one thing that they, anything else, no problem, but they wouldn't eat pork. So churches will instill little things in people's minds that they should not be instilling. Okay. Charlie, when I was growing up, my grand my grandparents told me I couldn't we couldn't play cards on Sunday, we couldn't yeah. go to movies on Sunday. I there you never, go. But I never could understand. I well, I know no cards why? on Sunday. Well, why? because and some states still have that. They call them blue laws, right? Okay, that becomes your your grandfather was doing that as a legalistic addition in his life. He wasn't saying the law says that. A blue law. I'm going to tell you what. If that is the law, that's the law. I have no problem with a a city or a state or whatever passing laws and saying we're not going to do this. For whatever reason, they say we don't want to promote people drinking on Sunday morning. Why would they do that? In order to promote them to go to church on Sunday morning. It's a way of maintaining a sense of righteousness within the people. I have no problem with that. If that's what they want to do, they want to do it. And if it's the law, it is the law. If they get rid of that law, you know what? The human heart is going to follow whatever path it wants to. And the more you take away instilling, and I said this a couple weeks ago in the Prophecy Update, and I, this is something I say a lot, is that you cannot legislate morality, but you can legislate immorality. immorality. You can tell people what not to do. You cannot tell them how to think in their heart and what they are to do. You know, you, you, know, you can't legislate somebody. They say, I'm gay. They're going to be gay but you can legislate immorality by saying that if you are gay and you're going to do these perverted things, there's a three-year prison sentence for you. And it is a deterrent. You can legislate immorality. So don't ever let the liberals tell you, well, you can't legislate morality and get away with that. You say, yes, but you can legislate immorality. Blue laws are intended to do that. They're intended to have people set aside a part of the week. And if you're going to have a blue law, you got to pick a day. They may make it Monday. They make it Wednesday or Sunday, whatever. But that is their right to do it. And if the people don't like that law, what do you do? Vote them out of office and get somebody else in there. All right. That's what you do. So I have no problem with blue laws. I, you know, I have people that completely disagree with me on this one. 
Iran. If you go to Iran, you have to wear one of those things if you're a woman, right? The, the hijab or the whatever, right? No problem with that. That's their country. If that's what they want to legislate on their people, and if you're a visitor in their country, you better do what they say, right? If you go to Indonesia and you touch a person on their head, they are going to pop you. Because it's an offense. You never touch somebody on their head in Indonesia, right? That's their culture, right? If they want to beat you up for doing that, then the, the judge has a right to say, you, you know, you got what you deserved. That's their culture. There are all kinds of things in the world that you go to somebody else's country that you do. When you go into Japan, if you walk into somebody's house in mm -hmm. Japan with your shoes on, you will never be invited again, and they will think you are the most despicable, deplorable person. You know what? I was watching. Hiroko probably remembers this. We're sitting in Japan one time, and this was not a joke uh, uh, scene. It was police chasing a bad guy, okay? They were chasing a bad guy in like a, a Clint Eastwood movie. It was serious. It was life-threatening, and the bad guy is going down a hallway. He checks a door. The door is unlocked. He took off his shoes as he's running into the house to run through somebody's house. Oh my and then the cops oh. chasing this person in a deadly scene no. stopped and took no. off their shoes before they went. Oh can you, you see that, Paul? <laughs> I mean, you can see it right there because it is so ingrained in them. You go into somebody's house in Japan and you wear your shoes in there. You are offending them in the greatest of way. And I wouldn't be surprised if you're not breaking some law in Japan as well. Not I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, trespassing is not nearly as bad as offending somebody by leaving on your shoes. So you see, you have to be careful when you say, well, those Iranians, they, hey, listen, if those people from Sweden want to go down there, these, um, uh, there was a, a bunch of women in the Swedish government that went down to Iran to be in solidarity with them. And they, when they went, they wore their hijabs. That's what they want to do. That's fine. Susan Rice, or not Susan Rice, one of these uh, uh, people in our government said, I'm not going to go over there because they mandated men, mandated they wear a hijab. That's her right. She doesn't have to go to their country. But if she goes, she needs to obey the laws of their land. Okay? Same thing with the Bible. They have, there is a law, and we need to be obedient to it. Okay? Uh, don't, don't wear your shoes in our house. Okay? My wife's from Japan, and she's got very sharp knives. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what's that? Ginsu She's knife. got the Ginsu knife. I said that as a joke on uh, uh, to my friend in an email, and he came back and he says, you know, the Ginsu knife is made in Ohio. It was a joke. It's <laughs> kidding. But she does have some real – we have a – I won't get into it. Anyway. Um, uh, okay. So um, let's see here. Um, uh, uh, Ten Commandments still apply. Normally worship on a Sunday instead of observing a Saturday Sabbath. Okay. We got all these things that – Thus, they violate their own premise in... Re oh, uh, here, let me read this again, because I kind of brushed over that. Okay, it's a pick and choose. And even those who say only the Ten Commandments still apply, like Albert Barnes, like Adam Clark, all of their commentaries, they say that the Ten Commandments are still in effect, okay? We'll still worship on Sunday hmm. instead of a Saturday. And then what do they do? In order to justify that they're not violating one of the Ten Commandments, they call the Sunday a Sabbath, Sabbath which it's not. The Sunday was never a Sabbath. It is the day the Lord rose from the dead. It is a day of worship. It is not a Sabbath. Okay, but in order to quell their minds over this moral law, civil law di dilemma, they just simply uh, make a category mistake by calling Sunday something that it is not. Okay, there you go. It is all or it is none. And the answer is none. You are not under the Old Testament law in any way, shape, or form. If it is repeated <clears throat> in the new, you are to not do it, okay? Don't kill or don't murder 
then don't do it, okay? If it says don't covet, then don't do it. And we still, even then, can't fulfill that perfectly. Why? Because when we hate our brother in our heart, it is as if we have murdered, murdered them. That's right. And if I look at a woman with lust in my heart, then I have committed. committed adultery. And I've also coveted at the same time if she's married, okay? So it, it, we cannot fulfill this anyway. It is impossible. It is given as a moral guideline to us. It is not given as a something that will keep us from being saved ever because we're already saved by grace through faith. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's done. The Holy Spirit is an erovon. It is a guarantee. Okay, done. All right, so um, let's see here. They violate their own premise in the Ten Commandments. It's all or none. The former commandment, as he said in uh, verse uh, Hebrews 7.18, is annulled. In its entirety, it is annulled. It is done. We have a new covenant. We're not part of an old covenant and now a new covenant. It is done. I could say this every single Thursday night forever, and I don't think it would be enough because you're going to have this brought to you in a church at some point or in a conversation on Facebook a thousand times a day because people are confused about question. Jesus speaking to the people of Israel in Matthew chapter 7. Is that something for the church? No. Absolutely not. It is for our edification. It is for our instruction, just as all scriptures God breathed. But he was speaking to Israel under the law in the uh, process of fulfilling the law. Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with us. Zip. Nada. Nothing. Um, no man knows the day and the hour. has nothing to do with something that is going to happen in the New Testament church. Nothing. People apply that to the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture is a mystery revealed from Paul's pen in 1 Corinthians 15, and that was many, many years after Jesus said that. The rapture was never considered by the church. It is not to be mixed with that dispensation. Okay, He was speaking to the Jews under the law about the end times where there are seven more years of the law for Israel. Everybody understand dispensationalism? The law is fulfilled, but there are seven more years that have been given to Israel to get away from the law and to get to Christ. Those seven years are the seven years of tribulation after the rapture of the church. Okay, Don't mix dispensations, because when you do, it, it, what does it say? Uh, hope that you are counted worthy. You know what he says in Luke when he says, uh, pray that you'll be able to stand before the Son of Man and be counted worthy. You know that verse? right? Have you ever heard that? Counted worthy? Okay, it's in the, it's, uh, let me read it to you because I don't know which one it is exactly, but I'm going to read this to you just so that you don't mix your dispensations. Um, let me pull this out. Hang on. Um, uh, do, 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 let me, Bible, I thought I had Bible Gateway. This is going to take a second, but I just want you to understand that when people cite this on the um, Facebook, you're going to need to be able to tell them worthy, W-O-R-T-H-Y. We're going to find this very quickly. It'll be in the book of Luke, and it says, um, 10-7. Ten, 10-7. Seven. Ten, seven. No, 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 no. no, okay. Labor is worthy. I did not think myself worthy. You are not worthy. No longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. But those who are worthy to attain that age, verse 21-36. Here it is. I'm going to read it to you. It says, um, I beat Burke for once in my life. Um, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. People say, I'm in the church, and I, I hope that I'm worthy to escape these things. In other words, I'll be a part of the rapture. It has nothing to the do rapture. with the rapture Tribulation. at all. 
It's tribulation. We are already out of here. When it says be counted worthy, he is speaking to the Jews who were left behind and that they would be counted worthy to enter into the kingdom age. It has nothing to do with us. We are not worthy of Jesus Christ. Not one person in here, not one person that has ever been called a follower of Jesus Christ is worthy except because of what he did. And when we accept what he did, it's done. We are worthy because of him. We don't need to worry if we're counted worthy. But there are people that will cite this on there and on Facebook. And when you see that, say, we're already worthy because of Christ. That does not pertain to us. That is Jesus speaking under the Old Testament law, in fulfillment of the law, about something that's going to happen at the end of the age in the last seven years, which are granted according to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We are worthy because of Christ. Otherwise, nobody is worthy. He's saying, be, pray that you will be counted worthy because of their following Christ and be obedient to his directions about what to do during the end times. Okay, everybody got that? I hope so. Okay, um, uh, let's see here. However, talking about the Ten Commandments being part of the entire law, not just a moral and a civil law, it sits uncomfortably with the masses. Does this mean that murder is okay? Of course not. And that here's what you wisely said. Nine of the Ten Commandments are explicitly restated in the New Testament and are therefore binding, just as everything else that Paul says. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but one, you may lose your joy, end up in prison for the rest of your life if you do something that's against the law. Two, you may lose your life because you may be executed for it. And three, you will certainly lose, as you said, rewards. That's right. So you can have three consequences at least, and maybe more, by violating one of these precepts. We're not to commit adultery. If you do that, you may get shot in the process, right? You also may get a divorce and lose everything, okay? You may lose your children. All of these things we have to take into consideration, but they are not going to keep you from being saved. People slip up and make mistakes all the time. It is usually not intentional. It's usually just the world coming after you and you getting caught up in something you didn't run like Joseph did, instead you stayed, right? It doesn't mean that you intended to go out and do something malicious against the Lord. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ, though, okay? Um, nine of the Ten Commandments, um, they're binding. However, the Sabbath, as I said, is noted as having been fulfilled. We now enter God's rest, Hebrews 4, verse 3. Yes, go ahead. Are you going to think that I'm ancient? Like That's okay. You believe? As a teenager, I used to hear it all the time, see you next Sabbath day. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I hear people, people email it to me all the time. Are you observing a Sabbath, Charlie? You're not burning yourself out? And I just say, I I, 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 I try to say it tactfully, and I say, well, I, I'm a follower of Christ, and I am in his rest or something. I try to just not be belligerent about that, because some people just need to change terminology. It's like people that say um, logo software, right? It's not logo software. It's logos. It's an Omicron and not an Omega. So when you talk about Logo software, that's not what it says. It says Lagos, right? Ha Lagos, the word. Jesus is Ha Lagos. Anyway. I learned that today. He learned that today. Because the reason why I said that is because he walked in, he says, well, on my Logo software. And I said, it's not Logos, it's Lagos. Anyway, so you see his ears are red. <laughs> and I wasn't even going to say him. I was just saying, but, you know, we have to get through with terminology. And sometimes it's hard. You say, you say Sabbath your whole life, well, then you use the term. And eventually you want I to say, be broken of that. If I say good luck 10 times a week. You bet. And I'm like, what's luck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when people say to me, um, uh, boy, were you lucky. I always try to turn it around and yeah. say, without being belligerent, I say, I was so blessed. Yeah. And that way yeah. they know that I right. have got a different word. And so. if I say it enough, 
hopefully they'll learn that. But you don't have to tell people, you don't have to be belligerent with them and say, it's not luck, that's a bad word, and that comes from, or, you know, fortune. Fortune comes from the name of a god, right? All of these words come from somewhere, and we got to say something. But there's usually something more appropriate that we can say. Don't be belligerent. Just say, yeah, I sure was blessed. And eventually you'll get over that. But you're right. I mean, there's times where I say, boy, that was lucky. You know, see the cat not get run over by the car or something. And I think, you know, it wasn't really luck, but uh, probably karma. I'm kidding. Anyway. <laughs> kidding. Okay. So we're, we're done with the Sabbath and um, it, we're free from Sabbath observance. Understanding this, we must now return to Paul's question because he asked us a question. Do we then make the law void through faith? Okay, do you see why we uh, didn't finish that last verse? We had five minutes last week to finish a verse, and we've already taken uh, 50 minutes on this one. So do we make the law void through faith? Is the law nullified through faith? Paul says, certainly not. So there is there a disconnect between what Paul is saying here and in the rest of the New Testament? The answer is no, certainly not. Okay. Instead, it is our misunderstanding of his next comment, which he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. If you stop right there and we say, do we make the law void, which some people will do, they say, well, Paul says the law isn't void, right? And they stop, just like they stop with go, uh, you know, go uh, no more and sin no more. They drop that off or I've not come to uh, destroy the law. And they stop instead of saying, but to fulfill, they will stop right there and say, well, Paul says the law isn't void. Absolutely not. The verse goes on. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The word translated here as establish is histonomen. It has been variously translated as strengthen, uphold, fulfill, establish, support, and so on. The law of faith, which Paul has been speaking of, is a means of validating or strengthening the law. We have failed at fulfilling it but Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill, all right? Return again to Jesus' words of Matthew 5, 17. I just said it, and do not think, okay? And fulfill it, he did. We established the law through Christ. We established the law through Christ. Now, by faith in his work, we are free from the very law which he fulfilled on our behalf. His merits, not ours, his merits are credited to us when we place our faith in what he did. Thus the law is established in us. It is established in us. It is fulfilled in us. It is upheld in us. It is strengthened in us. Okay? And thus it is obsolete to us. Because he fulfilled it, we are establishing that law because of what he did. All right? When something is fulfilled, it is no longer necessary. As he fulfilled it in our stead, we are free from its constraints. This is the amazing thing about the work of Jesus Christ. We established the law through what he did, not through what we did, okay? There is no contradiction to what Paul says, but just don't stop with one clause in the verse and, and you know, make your doctrine out. You've got to take the whole verse and then all of the rest of Paul's letters, wind them together and understand that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who keep working under the law, right? No, for all who believe. For all who believe. If you believe, the law is done. It is the end of the law, okay? Life application on this. Do not reinsert the law where it does not belong. Don't do that. Jesus established the new covenant at the Last Supper. We could go all the way through the book of Hebrews tonight and what that means to us. It is annulled. It is fulfilled. It is obsolete and on and on. It is established, okay, in the new covenant. The book of Hebrews tells us that the former commandment is annulled 
We cannot mix that which is annulled into what is newly established without showing a lack of trust in what Jesus did. That's all you're doing. When you reinsert the law, any preacher that gets up here and says, let's pass the plate, make sure you give a tithe. If you do that, you are taking what Jesus did and you are uh, saying that you can do better. You can add to what he has done, all right? It is no longer necessary. He fulfilled it in our stead. We are free from its constraints. Um, and you're, you're telling him that um, you should be, or you're demonstrating that you have a lack of trust in his fulfilling of the law. That's what's happening there. Give glory to God for what he has done through Jesus, and then go forward in the power and strength of that which Jesus established for us, okay? That's why when Paul says that um, uh, we're not to covet, Oh, we're gonna, I, I don't want to get into that now, because if I do, then we won't have anything to talk about in Romans 7, 7 and that's um, uh, what I was going to say. But what does he say? Uh, let me read it to you, and we won't discuss it, because I don't want to give away all the secrets of Romans 7. We're going to be there in uh, another week or two. But um, uh, let's see here. He says in Romans chapter 7. Are you going to read verse 25? I will. Um, it says here first... Um, um, uh, I, I find a lot. Now, verse 20. Now, uh, if I do what I will not to do... It is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. Well, where does sin come from? We discussed that at the beginning of the, the verse. Sin comes from, when have you the read law. the verses before? The law. That's right. Okay. So um, let me read that again. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but evil I will not to do that I practice. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I will not to drive over 50 miles an hour, but that dang law says that I am guilty before the law because I am driving 52 miles an hour, okay? I need to get to work on time. 52, I've never gone more than 52. Okay, so. On 41. On for, wherever, wherever. On that little side road where it says 20. That, that's, anyway, um, okay. No, I don't drive that fast. He's just he's just um, picking on me. He knows that I drive right at the speed limit always. Um, Help me out, Jim. Jim and I race home. He'll get implicated if I say, because we race on the rest of the way down 41. Oh, yeah, one time we almost. Huh? Just implicated. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm kidding. We don't race. He's always very good. As a matter of fact, I can't tell you. There are two people in this church that I will pull up next to, and I will be there going like this. Hey, hey! And they have no idea you're there. One of them is Tom Alley. There's the other one. I mean, they'll be at the light, and I'll pull up next to them. They have no, no idea. Yes, absolutely. I, I, every Saturday, or I'll pull up next to Tom on the highway. And I'll be driving next to him for about a mile. And I'll be going, no. yeah. And finally, I'll just beep, and he looks over, and he goes, oh, yeah. These guys, man, they're thinking well, about something. Saturday, I did this. But to I you. did sense you there, and I was like, going, should I pick my nose? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so let me let me finish this these verses, and then we'll get back into Romans three. Now, if I will to do what I will not, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. I got sin in me because the law has told me not to do something, and I'm doing it. Okay, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, right? For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he says, these are the words I wanted to get to. O wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? In verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, 
the law of sin. So think about that, and we'll be there in a couple weeks. Um, uh, amazing, simply amazing what Paul was able to construct with his mind, with his great understanding, being a Pharisee, and with the instruction of the Lord, how he could pen this under the inspiration of the Spirit to show us the marvel of what Jesus Christ has done. And how people can come, especially people that understand the law of Moses, that have studied it, and then they read the words of Paul, and the light never comes on. It never. I'm talking about Jews that know the law. They know all of these precepts. They know that Abraham was circumcised or was declared righteous before he was circumcised. And you can show them that. You can talk to them about that, and it it will not come out of them. And I don't understand it because Paul is so clear. The veil over the eyes. But when they come to Christ, the veil is lifted. And you think that it doesn't happen. I need some clarity here. Okay. Okay. So sin that dwelled in him when he was doing what he willed not to do right. was from the law. From the law. Before Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law. Right. Sin couldn't be imputed. No, but but it was it was counted because when uh, when uh, the, the, the Jews were leaving Egypt right. and it was like, oh, you're going to the promised land and then it was like, okay, no, you one, you your spies lied and two, their evil has not reached its it's max. Well, the evil was the Amorites yeah, in, right, yeah. in uh, right, the right. land of Canaan. Yes, but but they had evil. Yes. They well, that is that's a different law that Paul talked about earlier. Remember, he talked about the uh, the law. Uh, 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 let me go back. It's in Romans chapter two, and he talks about. Um, um, the law uh, written in their hearts. The ro- law written on their okay. hearts. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. And he talks about all the different laws. And we talked about that. Okay. That there, you you have the different laws. You have the law of conscience, which we were given. That that comes after the fall. And then you have the written law. Mm-hmm. And all the written law does is it adds to our guilt. It doesn't right. free us right. from the guilt. Okay. That's what he's talking right. about. Okay. Be- yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, we have finished another chapter. Wow. We have Woo-hoo. verse four one. Uh, Party time, yeah, we'll have, mm-hmm. I was so mad at Shaner's last night, was it last night or two nights ago, two nights ago, I was so mad at him, I went in, uh, the guy was leaving to go back to Wisconsin, he didn't have a car, and he's 90 years old, and I said, you ain't walking down to the pub to get a burger, I mean, it's hot out, so we took him to Shaner's, because he's from Wisconsin as well, and we sat in there for like an hour before they brought us a drink of water, and we, oh, I, by the time I left her, I said, I'm never coming here again. I will order from there for here again, but I, I he, they were busy, and no, but no employees showed up. It was him and another, but I was just, I was done. I thought, I can't take this, I, and my daughter called it being hangry. You're hungry, and you're angry, and it just exacerbates it, and I finally almost, I, I we were like, I, I, I just gotta go. I'll, I'll Go somewhere else and eat, and oh, it was it was horrible. Anyway, but it wasn't their fault, and I got over my hangry. Go ahead, four, four one. Okay, four one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our far forefather, discovered in this matter? Okay, a little bit different than ours. It says, "What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh?" Okay, you got the hmm. law which works against the flesh. Verse four one. Paul begins chapter four in a manner which is similar to chapter three. The original letter, remember this though, contained no chapter or verse divisions, but these are logical points of demarcation which were later added. Does anybody remember where the chapter divisions came from? It's about the year 1500. Uh, no, no, no. The chapter divisions were uh, uh, 10,000 something, uh, 1030, I think, and it was a guy named Cardinal Hugo Sancto de Claro, mm-hmm. I believe. And um, there was another guy that made chapter divisions, and his were rejected, and they went with this other guy. And then in 1560, 
Robert Stefanos is the one. He uh, made the verse divisions, and they were first published in the Geneva Bible, 1560. There you go. Okay, just a little history for you. Uh, the Geneva Bible is the first one with the chapter and verse divisions by the work of Robert Stephanos, and I believe that they are inspired by God. I've showed you in this church patterns many times, and they're, they're way too many to, uh, to dismiss, but we'll go on. Um, there were no uh, chapter verse divisions at the time. It, Paul didn't say, okay, I'm in chapter four now. He just wrote, okay, it's a letter, all right? Um, uh, he uh, begins chapter three by introducing a pertinent question. Just as he did in three, he does it in chapter four. He has built an argument and defended his argument in a very precise and exacting manner, okay? Introducing legal terms and processes in order to validate his points, okay? Each step has been introduced to confirm the concept of justification by faith, okay? Not works, by faith. During the progression, he has shown the nature of sin, the nature of fallen man, both under natural law, which you were asking about, and under the Mosaic law. All are bound under sin, and none have an innate righteousness. Nobody. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Because of this, none can attain to it by their own works. Nobody. You cannot work your way to heaven. Something external is needed, okay? It's, it comes from outside. It cannot come from within us. The sin is already there. Adam sinned. Every person is in Adam because every person person is born of a man, all right, and the sin transfers through man. Therefore, all have sinned, even from birth, even from conception, all right? So there's none righteous. There is none, no, not one, okay? So all are bound under sin and none have an innate righteousness. We can't attain uh, it to by works of our own. We need something external. And so now what does he do? He introduces Abraham as a living example of his argument. As Abraham is the father of the Hebrew nation, and because he lived hundreds of years before the introduction of the law, 430 years, right? From the promise until the law, 430 years. Okay, that is in, uh, where, where is that explicitly stated? 430 years from Abraham to the time of the oh, law. Oh, well, I think it's Galatians. Galatians, chapter uh, 3, I think it is. Anyway, it might be chapter 2. Anyway, Paul says that. That shows you that when it says um, it was 430 years for the sojourn of the children of Israel in Egypt, it wasn't. Go through my sermons if you ever want to know that. You're going to have to go carefully because I give you the year. Every time we come to a new year in the Bible, I give you the year. Does anybody remember the year that I gave you in Leviticus chapter 1 two weeks ago? Don't worry, neither do I. Um, <laughs> anyway, but that's why we write things down is so that we have that. And I go every single year. It was 215 years in the land of Canaan, 215 years in the land of Egypt. Both were not a land their own. They were pilgrims in Canaan. There is no contradiction in the Bible. It was 430 years from Abraham to the law, to the Exodus. And then the law came 45 days later, or 50 days later, actually. But um, so you've got this. This is being told here, and Paul explicitly states it in Galatians. Okay, so um, hundreds of years, um, uh, Abraham was... um, uh, Introduced what? 1445 BC, Leviticus. Not 1445. Yeah, 1445-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1419-1
what occurred with Abraham occurred before the law, okay? This will confirm his statements at the end of chapter 3, which occurred, which concerned boasting before God. There's no boasting before God, and he's going to now confirm that because Abraham is before the giving of the law. Okay, he now asks, what shall we say that our Abraham, oh, did you read verse 1? Yes, you did. Okay, um, he now asks, what shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found? Paul is clearly indicating that Abraham is the father of the faith. He's making that point right here, okay? A point not to be missed by those under the law when speaking to Jesus as during the exchange of John 8, 38, and 39. Let me read that to you. John 38 and 39. We are of our father Abraham. Yes, that's right. John 8, 38 says, um, I speak what you have seen with my, uh, I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And then they say, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. In other words, seek to kill him. Okay, so he is established there and elsewhere that um, Abraham is the father of their faith. That's what he's known as, okay? He is um, uh, there. And then even the Lord acknowledged this to the people of Israel when he spoke to them through Isaiah. Okay, um, you've read one already, Darla. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. You got that? Um, Have you got your Bible with you? Today? Yeah, I know you do. I saw you with it. So Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. And um, I should have gone that way with the last verse. I'm going to try to get you guys. But read loud because the people online need to know that too. Oh, that's okay. Take a look. And uh, uh, Isaiah is right after you got the uh, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, uh, Song of Solomon, and then you've got Isaiah. So anyway, when you find it, no problem. Isaiah what? 51 verses 1 and 2. One and two. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and then he explains it. And to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father. Look to Abraham your father. And to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man. And I blessed him and Okay, so we have it established Old Testament and New. He is the father of the faith, and the Lord himself tells them this. Okay, so we've got that. Because this is testified, uh, because this is testified to the nation, even from their own scriptures, they don't need to have, you know, uh, we disregard what Paul says. Their scriptures say it, which established them as a people, then what is deduced concerning Abraham will be all the more sure and binding if it is a demonstrable truth. Okay, Paul's next words will begin to establish what Abraham has found according to the flesh. And that's what he's talking about in verse 4-1. The introduction of this phrase, according to the flesh, has been debated, and there are two options which are most disputed. There are others, but these are the two major options. That Abraham is the physical father of the people. He is their ancestor, and they are his descendants. Or two, that according to the flesh is tied to the words, has found. In other words, what thing in the person of Abraham is found to be true concerning our previous argument? Those are the two possibilities that people most discuss. The second is the obvious and correct option. Okay, so I'm going to read it again. Let me read the verse, which says, um, What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? According to the flesh is tied to the words, has found. 
what thing in the person of Abraham is found to be true concerning our previous argument, because he's been building up a logical argument, okay? So um, he will continue with this thought by giving the practical example of Abraham. The fact that he is the father of the faithful is true, but how he became that way is what is of what is important to Paul and his argument. The first is dependent on the second, but the reciprocal is not the case, okay? So one is dependent on the other. If you turn the argument around, it's not. It's like when you get to uh, baptism in John 16, um, uh, Mark 16. I want to show you something here just so you understand the logic which Paul is using here. Um, Mark, hang on one second here. And he says in Mark 16, same type of thought that people have to understand one in order to understand the other. And if you understand misunderstand one, then you can get them both wrong. It says... Um, um, uh, where is it? Uh, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, okay? But he who does not believe will be condemned, okay? People say, so you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, what is that talking about? Because it goes on to say, he who does not believe will be condemned, okay? So you have belief and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's not speaking of baptism in water, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. If you believe and are baptized, in other words, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you believe, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's our deposit. If you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. If you don't believe, then you're not baptized, and therefore you won't be saved. That is not speaking of water baptism. But have you heard that quoted many times by Church of Christ and other people? You must be baptized in order to be saved. Nothing to do it because one is conditional on the other. That's what Paul is doing here with Abraham and faith. Okay, so um, where was I? Verse four one. Um, uh, oh, we're, that's four two. I got to get back to. Okay, so um, the reciprocal is not the case. Life application. Then we'll go on to. We got one more verse. Good. Um, use caution when reading commentaries. When you read Charlie Garrett's commentaries online, some people read them every day and make a little amen at the end of them. I know a couple people here and use caution. Right? I'm a guy, and I'm giving you my, my best interpretation of what these verses say, but I may be wrong. Read other commentaries. I know they read three different three a day. You read Our Daily Bread and something else. And, what do you mean? And, you can comment on your commentary? Yeah. <laughs> on Facebook. On Facebook. Not on, yeah. Hey, I, remind down. me, and I'll send you the link. Yeah, I'd love to have you come in there and give your comments when you disagree. Charlie, you're an idiot. Um, so uh, use caution when reading commentaries, particularly in biblical matters. Don't bind yourself to one interpretation until you have researched other possibilities. Somebody sent me an email a day ago. Actually, it was Monday. Monday morning, it, uh, um, I opened it up, and it was um, 4.15 in the morning. It was on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And I thought, oh, I, I almost got snaked into answering it. And I thought, I can't. It's sermon typing day. I've got to do this. And then on Tuesday, and at the end of Tuesday, I sent him an email, and I said, I, I'm not, I have not ignored your question. I, I do not do these things on Monday or Tuesday. I have certain things that I do. I may get to it on Wednesday. And I thought, well, I'll do this on Wednesday. I spent three and a half hours, didn't I? Hedica walked in and I'm like, please just go away. I spent three and a half hours on those verses because I wanted to give them a full answer. And what did I do? I must have read 50 different commentaries and I, wow. I reread some of them and I reread them. And you have to logically say, is this person right? Why am I disregarding that? And you have to do that because if not, you just start listening to one guy, you're going to have his 
theology which is not going to be complete and full, okay, or accurate sometimes. So always check what you're uh, told. So uh, don't bind yourself to one interpretation unless you have researched other possibilities. The Bible is a unified whole. And that's one thing we have to understand. When Jesus says something here, if this seems to contradict it here, then we have to find out why, okay? Dispensationalism usually itself answers it, but there are often times where even that doesn't quite do it. And you have to say, well, I'm misunderstanding this. This word has been mistranslated, whatever, okay? Um, it's a unified whole, and it will always, in the end, the Bible will always validate itself. It will never contradict itself. Scripture will never contradict Scripture, ever. There is a way to resolve every single matter in Scripture, but sometimes it takes real hard work. Yesterday, one verse, which I already had a commentary on, but I wanted it to be more sufficient because of the way he asked the question. It was three and a half hours, and I went to bed with a headache, and that's just what you do because you want to make sure that you're giving somebody the best information you can. Logical arguments must rest on logical truths. And the conclusions must be in line with the overall objectives presented in Scripture. Okay, there are some things which are minute in Scripture, and there are some things which are overall um, a truce. And those minute things must fit in with the overall truths. They are not standalone thoughts ever. They must fit into this is uh, the doctrine of sin. This is the doctrine of salvation. This is the doctrine of whatever. You've got all these different doctrines, and these minute truths must fit into the larger truths. They cannot be separate from them, okay? So, verse 2. 4, verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, and he had something to boast about, but not before God. Okay? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Okay? If you are justified by your works, then you can boast, right? See, I've done something, and now I stand justified before God. But he says, not before God. Okay, Paul's words here would be set against the thought of Jews, speaking to the Jewish people again, who says, Abraham was justified through, no, works. Jews, through, works. not even, works, but what specific work? 15.6. No, 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 no. Jew speaking, they will say Abraham was justified by something. It's an action. It's in Genesis 17. Begins with the sea and ends with circumcision. That's right. Circumcision. Oh, yes, yes, okay. That would be their argument. All right. Let me read this again. Paul's here, words here would be said against the Jew who says Abraham was justified through circumcision, which is what every Jew believes. This brought me into the covenant. This is what makes me just before God. Go ahead. Don't they think that uh, 22 is what they're referring to there where he offered Isaac with the work? That may be as well. I'm saying that a Jew will not boast in, in him offering up Isaac, ever. When you talk to a Jew about what, what makes them righteous, what are they going to tell you? Always. Oh, they're going to talk that I am of the circumcised people. I, and that is their sign. That's why Paul uses that as the benchmark. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Okay? He's setting that, it against that. And what you just said, again, Abraham was justified by the offering of his son on Mount Moriah. Okay, they may use that, but the main one is always going to be circumcision. They can say, well, he was justified before God because of offering up a son on Mount Moriah. However, Jews will often say, and believe it or not, I've read this commentary many times on Jewish sites, that what he did on Mount uh, uh, Moriah was against God. And why would they do that? Why would they come to that conclusion? And they write long commentaries on it. Because it so obviously pictures Christ. Uh, under the Father. Yeah. 
so obviously, and they write long, long commentaries on how it was disobedient, so much so that they say that's why Sarah is never mentioned again after that incident because she said what he did was so inappropriate. They, they build this whole theology on this so that they can get away from the thought of a father sacrificing his son as being pleasing to God. Mm. So that is not the greatest example. Circumcision is, okay? I've read, go online and just type those words in. Um, was what Abraham did on Mount Moriah with Isaac wrong? Just type that in and you'll get commentary after commentary explaining that. And then they throw in Sarah and they throw in this and they throw in that. All of this stuff saying he was disobedient, not obedient, because they know that it points to Jesus. Really? Uh, yes, go type that in and you'll, you'll see it. Okay, so uh, to argue against this, he will introduce scripture which will stand against this thought. It's important to note here that uh, though that James 2 verse 21, we've got 10 minutes, seems to indicate something contrary to this. And we will talk about that a little more later. James 2.21, let me read it to you. Uh, uh, yes, faith without works is dead. I won't even go because he quoted it. But anyway, that's what it says there. Seems contrary to it. And we can go through faith without works and we can go through all the examples. I've already done it in this class eight times, but we'll do it again. But there are important concepts which must be understood clearly before we can grab the words of James chapter 2 and stand before God and boast in our deeds. All right? The first is that the term ek or out of is used by both Paul and James concerning works, not the term dia or through. Although the um, difference may seem small, Paul consistently shows that justification does not come through works. The second thing to note about James 2 is that the example of Abraham and the others given, such as Rahab the harlot, are fully explained where? I've said this before, come on, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abraham, by faith Rahab the harlot, okay? It is always by faith. So what they say preempts James, what James must be speaking of when he says works justify or uh, you're justified by works and not just by faith, they're works of faith. If you do a work and it's not a faith, then it doesn't mean anything to God anyway. And I bring up the same guy every time, Bill Gates. He doesn't believe in God, right? But he does works all the time. He gives all this money to AIDS charity. It means nothing because it is not a work of faith. So what James is speaking about is still of faith. He's saying that the works are of faith and that will justify you. It's You have to understand everything comes back to faith in the Bible always, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, James 2, uh, where was I? Dear, through the second thing, uh, yeah. Rahab the harlot are explained in Hebrews 11. There they are clearly described as deeds of faith by Abraham. In other words, the faith in God's word led to the deed, not the other way around. The deed had no part in the justification of righteousness. So where did the justification come from? Paul will explain it quite clearly in the following verse. To set it up, though, he gives this verse. If Abraham was justified by works... The word, if Abraham was, implies that he wasn't. But the introduction is proper to show why. He says, if Abraham was, but he wasn't. Okay? Therefore, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Of course, if we do something to merit favor, then we can boast in what we've done. I do something to make uh, the doctor over there happy, and then I can boast. I made the doc happy, right? You can do that, right? If we are in a battle and everyone is certain to die unless an immediate source of relief is found, then the actions of the person providing the relief could lead to boasting, right? I saved everybody. Look at me. 
Johnny charged the hill alone, took out the enemy guns, destroyed the minefield, and with a blasting charge, and he had lunch waiting for us when we arrived at the bunker. He did everything up the hill, he took care of everything, and he made lunch for us, right? Well, Johnny can boast, and guess what? He'll probably get something to boast about. He'll get a medal for it. You did a good job, right? Okay, so, well, Johnny can boast. He didn't have faith that he would make it, though. Johnny just did it. He was willing to sacrifice himself on the way. People that do things like that don't think I'm going to get through this. They just do it because they know that somebody else needs them to do it. Okay. In fact, he probably thought he would die trying. He simply saw no other action and he took it. It was a step in the dark. Okay. Everybody got that? Faith is not a step in the dark. People always say that. Faith is like taking that final step in the dark. No, not at all. What is faith? It is a step into God's revealed light. I'm giving you this book of instruction. This is what you need to be saved. And you say, you know what? I'm going to trust this. That's not a step in the dark. That's a step into the light. He has revealed to you what you need. That's a big difference there, okay? So um, uh, where was I on that? It's uh, it, it, God's uh, do, 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 not a step in the dark. Uh, hang on. That's what I want. Okay, yes. This is why Paul finishes this verse with, but not before God. It is the introduction into verse 3, which will explain why Abraham's faith was not a step into the dark, nor was it a point on which he could boast. He bore no part of his justification, none, but rather it was an act of God based on his faith alone. God told him something. He believed it. God gave him a revealed light. He didn't just arbitrarily step into the dark. Okay, so this leads us to the final point, faith. Faith is not a deed. Okay, I talked about this last week. Reformed theologians will say that you need to, if you say, I have faith apart from God, which not really apart from God, is something that God gave you when you were created, okay? And they say you need to be regenerated in order to believe. No, it's something that you possess because God gave people the ability to have faith. And then he reveals his light and you say, I'm going to exercise my faith in that direction. Okay, faith is not a deed. Exercising, exercising one's faith is not somehow usurping God's gift, as many Calvinists would claim. And I brought that up before several times. Their idea is that God, and I just said it, I'm going to say it again, regenerates us in order to believe. We then believe and then are saved and justified. That is nonsense of the highest order, and it crosses the line of reason. When you pick this book up and you read it, you would never come to that conclusion unless you were looking for a reason to finagle several verses that you just don't understand. That's where that comes from, okay? It also violates the tenor of Scripture on a multitude of levels, on a multitude of levels. When man fell, he gained, he didn't lose, he gained the knowledge of good and evil. That's right, okay? Something was lost, but something was gained. Using reason is a part of who we are. There may be nothing inherently good in us, but we can see the good in God and we can accept it. That's the difference. The reason leading to faith is not a work, and it in no way diminishes the glory that God deserves. They say, well, if you say that you had your faith and you chose to uh, receive Jesus Christ, you're taking away the glory of God. On the contrary, it's completely opposite to what Calvinists would say. It's completely <laughs> opposite. He is glorified because I have made a choice to accept what he has done. He's more glorified, not less glorified, through my act of faith, okay? It's not mine in the sense that he created me and I'm a part of his creation, so it still stemmed from him. But he has allowed me the choice 
if you, example, I make a robot and I say, you are going to believe that I am your creator. And I program that into him. Does that give me any glory at all? No. no. But if that robot, he's made with a free will and I, I say, you know what? He never sees me. He just knows that I made him. And I give him some instruction and I say, well, here's what I expect of you. And he finally comes back to me. That's going to show that he is giving me the glory that I am due. You make a robot and you pl plug something into it. That doesn't give me any glory at all, right? It's just me programming a computer like anything else. So we have to understand that you are not diminishing God's glory by, by this approach. You are giving him glory by it, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, uh, where was I? <clears throat> There's maybe nothing inherently good in us, but we can see the good in God and accept it. The reason, this reason, leading to faith is not a work and it in no way diminishes the glory God deserves. On the contrary, it exalts him because we use our free will, granted by him to choose him. God regenerating somebody in order for them to be saved does just the opposite. It's like the robot I just mentioned. It would demonstrate God's need to be glorified, and God does not need to be glorified. He is glorious. He possesses his own glory, okay? He doesn't need to create something in order to glorify himself. God lacks nothing, including the need to be glorified. By mixing categories of what occurs in our salvation, we come up with a confusion and a loss of what has happened in creation since the beginning. It skews the plan of redemption which is laid out in Scripture. Man chose to disobey, and this in no way laid is no way laid at the feet of our Creator. Man chose to accept his offer, and it is completely and absolutely a gift for which God alone receives the glory. It is belief in what God says, not mere belief in God, as we will see in verse 3. Okay? I'll give you a life application and right on time. Jesus and the apostles throughout the New Testament state time and time and time again words such as believe, call on, have faith, trust, and so forth. These are things that we do throughout our lives. The ability to do these things establishes us as rational, free-willed beings. This is a gift of God, and therefore when we exercise them for God, it is still ultimately of God, not of ourselves. Take the time today to, re to revel <coughs> excuse me, in what God has given you, which is choice. Now go and give him the glory for the choice of accepting what he has done for you in the receiving of Jesus Christ. Okay? So you see, it, it, it just, if you take it down to its most fundamental, simple level, you will always come back to the, the thought that God is glorious and that we're not harming his glory in any way by either receiving him or rejecting him. He is glorious all by himself. We give him glory when we receive him. And there's a difference. He has the glory and we give him glory. Okay? Let's go ahead and go to prayer here. Um, Jim, go ahead. You're not going to be here next week. No, uh, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this day and uh, our ability to get together as Christians and uh, dig into the, your word deeply. And uh, we, uh, thank you for blessing us with Charlie, who, uh, who's got a good, sharp pickaxe and uh, the uh, time and patience to uh, dig as deep as um, be for each of our uh, classes. And Lord, um, there's plenty uh, of us uh, here who... Uh, we enjoy your word, but there's plenty outside that, that don't know it and don't know you. And uh, Lord, just give us the strength and know with all to be able to uh, speak and at least get the interest so that they can exercise their free will and turn towards you and give you that glory. And uh, Lord, uh, hear all of our prayers and concerns. There's many 
and uh, certainly hear our praises of which there are so many more. We do pray all this to your son's holy name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, let me back this baby up and we'll say goodbye to these folks out here. Oops, I pushed the wrong one. Hang on a second here. We'll go back there. There we go. It's back. Okay, here we go. Have a wonderful week. We love all of you. Take good care. Tom, you know I'm not going to be there tomorrow, right? Because I'm going to do a funeral in the afternoon. I know now. Okay. Oh, okay. You didn't know that then. Okay. But there will be people there. They've already told me, so you're in good shape there. I apologize. I thought I said that during, um, oh, you weren't at lunch last Saturday. That's why. Okay. Ladies, have a great night. Wonderful. Have a good night. Yeah. Did you go both nights? I'm glad you heard. Uh, you Oh, I've had a frog in my throat that. Wow. Oh, I've just every time I try to speak, it just it's stuck in there. Um, what are we doing on Saturday? Okay, um, that's tomorrow, by the way. Oh no, no it's uh, Thursday. Ah, oh, I don't know why I just said tomorrow to him. And if, um, ah, it's been a long, tough week. I'm telling you. Um, uh, okay, if Jim goes, I told you we have to go together. The only thing is, I don't really.